Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford University's Centre for the Study of the United States and its place in the world. I'm Adam Smith. I've long talked about the battle for the soul of America. We must restore the soul of America. Our nation is shaped by the constant battle between our better angels and our darkest impulses. And what presidents say in this battle matters. It's time for our better angels to prevail. Tonight, the whole world is watching America. And I believe at our best, America is a beacon for the globe. We will not lead. We will lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. President-elect Joe Biden, speaking after his victory in the 2020 election, became clear. Throughout the campaign, he spoke of the election with evident sincerity as a battle for the soul of America, a reminder, if one was needed, of the epic scale of American politics, its grandiosity, the ease with which it defaults to universal, redemptive language. If Biden didn't quite say his victory restored America as the world's last best hope, he easily could have done. But though Biden has won quite comfortably in the national popular vote, this rancorous, bitter election has once again been a reminder of how profoundly polarised the country remains. So what does this election tell us about the state of America and its place in the world? Well, joining me now to discuss this are two Oxford colleagues. Kate Guy is a lecturer in international relations, a DPhil student, and was a uh, staffer on Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. And Mitch Robertson is a fellow of the RAI and the director of our 2020 election programming uh, Kate and Mitch, thank you very much for uh, joining me. Um, Kate, so we're we're speaking now on Tuesday morning. So election day was a week ago. How are you feeling right now? Uh, luckily, rested at this point. I think if we had recorded this a, a few days ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, but but feeling good, feeling newly hopeful and excited about everything to come uh, back home for for us in the states. How were you feeling on Wednesday morning last week? <laughs> there was certainly a moment. Um, I, I, both my husband and I sort of barely slept um, at all in, until the race was called, I feel like, because especially being based here in the UK, all of the big returns uh, come in the middle of the night <laughs> for us. So we were glued to our, our cable news feeds um, back home. There was certainly a moment on Tuesday night where things looked scary. Um, and uh, despite the fact that we were all sort of prepared for the eventuality of mail-in votes coming in much later and and the race to shift, I think any of us who, who were on the campaign in 2016 knew what it felt like to sort of um, have the map sort of fall apart uh, very quickly and have the bottom fall out of things. So there was certainly a moment on Tuesday night where it felt like that was maybe going to start happening. Um, but I think by the time we woke up on Wednesday, it was clear that um, it was likely going to be a, a Biden win and it was just going to take time to, to count the votes. So at that point, it was just sort of a steely hang in there. And as, as Biden liked to say, keep the faith uh, for, for yeah. the Democrats in the room. I mean, there are two narrative frames, both of which are true simultaneously. I mean, one is 
it's absolutely incredible to unseat an incumbent president. I mean, this just doesn't happen very often. The other thing is that this is a stasis election in spite of that. I mean, it's just remarkable. You look at the little the little red and blue arrows on the, the New York Times have this cool, has this particularly good graphic showing sort of county by county whether the vote has moved in one direction or the other. Um, in 2016, it was just a it was just a sea of, of red arrows going in one direction across most of the country. Um, this time, really small arrows with a few little exceptions. Otherwise, it just looks like the election is a no change election. And um, which of those things is more seems more important to you, Mitch? I mean, I think to me, as as you led with, the idea of unseating a first term president is just incredibly rare in US politics. It's not it's been forty years since a party has only held the White House for four years. Obviously the George Bush, the George H.W. Bush uh, was a third Republican term. So anything that happens once every forty years in American politics is remarkable. And I think as as we've seen, Donald Trump is this once-in-a-generation character, so to unseat him out of the White House. I think there was this narrative that came up around, I'd be interested in Kate's view on this, the Hillary Clinton campaign that, oh, they they made a mistake in their campaign, Trump was easy to beat. I think what we've seen throughout 2020 is that Trump is very difficult to beat, and that is a, it is a big scalp for Joe Biden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what did, what did, I mean, Kate, you, so you've, you were at the heart of a campaign four years ago trying to beat Donald Trump. And I don't know, I mean, you know, at the time there were there were sort of two views of this, weren't there? I mean, one was that he was a completely um, unlike any other candidate and just had the ability to reach voters that no other Republican had ever seen before. And so he was going to be really hard. The other was, my God, how can anyone vote for this guy? He's so out of it that surely, it, you know, and, and again, and the, the, the narrative of the 2016 election mm-hmm. wavered between those two things, didn't it? I mean, what, what did, what were there things that you think that um, Joe Biden got right this time that Hillary Clinton got wrong in 2016? Was he was he a better candidate? Was it a better run campaign? What was the difference? Well, I don't think it's either of those, uh, but I'm I'm highly biased on on both of the the candidacy of 2016 and the campaign operation. And and for full disclosure, I, I worked for the campaign manager, who's sort of like the CEO of the campaign, determining strategy and every sort of minutia of the campaign in 2016. And I would say we had an incredible opportunity operation there, even even a bigger operation than in 2020, just because of the ground game uh, that we were able to run on like in, in these days. Uh, and Jen O'Malley Dillon, the campaign manager of, of Biden's campaign, was phenomenal and, and worked with us as well in 2016. I think the biggest difference, though, um, and in a way, and I think I was maybe a little bit too close to it in 16 and then further away in, in 20, was how sort of unimaginable it was to everybody involved that Donald Trump could could be elected in 16. And that, as we saw, has a real implication actually on how people vote. So if, if as you said, Adam, uh, people really don't take seriously that, that this person could be doing well uh, from the media to President Obama to uh, James Comey, sort of all uh, acting with the inevitability that, that a Donald Trump would lose, that ultimately changes many outcomes down the line. And I think we saw a lot of proof of that. Um, now, on the flip side, that makes things easier, I think, when Donald Trump is the president, that people um, obviously can imagine it, um, can can realize and see where he could win. And um, I think, as you saw, the, the turnout from both sides, it was massively bigger. And a, a lot of that is just because people know that, that this could happen again. And in terms of just strategy, I think there was certainly a moment in 2016 where, you know, after 
after the Access Hollywood tape and and as things were getting um, sort of near the end, it looked like it was going to be a blowout. As we will probably talk about, the polls in that regard have been wildly off in terms of what a blowout looks like. Uh, but there was definitely a moment, I think, that everybody wanted to get in there and make that win as big as possible, right? We needed to win the Senate. We needed to go to Texas. We needed to do sort of all of these things. What the 2020 campaign did, it also had that moment as well, where it looked like it was going to be a blowout. And they said... Yeah, I mean, Kamala was... was Harris was in Texas, wasn't she? And, Definitely. And Biden yeah. was campaigning in Ohio, which she ended up losing by eight, eight points in the end. I mean, you, you, you could see some of the same mistakes being made there. I don't think it was mistakes, though. I think they they tried that just to, you know, sort of, uh, sort of help the down-ballot races there and sort of uh, improve turnout, but they didn't take their eye off the ball, and the ball was uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, um, and they did not get distracted from that effort, which was from the beginning, sort of the map that they needed to turn out. Yeah, mm. I think that's a good point. What do you think, Mitch? How, did, think, how did this... Yeah, go on. Oh, no, I was going to say, I think that's a great point about where the, the use of candidate Biden. I mean, Biden didn't go to Texas. He spent the, the last couple of days in Georgia, which has turned out to be pivotal. You know, he spent this time in Western Pennsylvania, areas that were critical to getting him over the line. I think a lot of... Um, you can't really speak highly enough, I think, of the Joe Biden campaign. It's It's been this thing. I'm sure there's a litany of articles that have written off the Biden campaign from all the way through the primaries, you know, that he, you know, he was focusing on an old message. He was too old. He was spending too much time in his basement. He shouldn't, he should be doing these rallies. I mean, I think a great degree of credit needs to go to the campaign. It's, it's played this beautifully and has won, has won. I mean, that, that's what campaigns need to do. That's the only metric really that we measure presidential campaigns against is winning. And this is a winning campaign. Definitely. Yeah. Incredibly disciplined, but also yeah. innovative, which I think that can yes. can be lost sight of, um, especially given, you know, the candidate's age and, and the message. But they had to what, what are you thinking of? There? They had to flip on a dime to everything being digital, um, sort of at the moment that you need to build a yeah. huge operation. And uh the the Democratic Party has not been has not been great at digital games, sort of aside from AOC and some of the younger progressive candidates. Um, and for the the Biden campaign to to rapidly be producing the videos they were sort of engagement on all elements of social and and digital media that took a lot of effort um, and a lot of investment. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I still want to I still want to talk a little bit about the, the the candidate himself though, and and how much you know whatever the operation that the the campaign was putting in place. I just wonder whether you know Joe Biden turned out to be. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing that makes a candidate look better than winning, right? But um, so with that, but nevertheless, whereas Joe Biden turned out to be maybe the one guy who could pull this coalition together, right? Because it seems to me, okay, the, the Democratic Party has got a problem at the moment because it's clearly over se- several election cycles is losing ground in the old in the Midwest in the Rust Belt states, which were its old bulwark unionized, formerly industrialized parts blue of the United wall. States. Yeah. Mm, the blue wall thing. And it's slowly gaining in other places, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, so they're way behind, further behind in Texas. And um, the challenge is that you can't invest in one and ignore the other. You still have to win enough in the old blue wall post-industrial states, even while still rallying the the new, more multi-ethnic democratic base in other parts of the country and that's a really hard trick to pull off because you've got to you've got to get enough votes in in trumpish america you can't just rely given the nature of the electoral college if you're the democrats on winning in new sunbelt america 
And Joe Biden, it seems to me, Joe Biden was the ideal candidate to do that, right? Because, I mean, he's he's an old white guy. He's an old white Catholic guy who can't speak woke. Like, I mean, if anyone could be unthreatening to white voters, um, then it's going to be Biden. And in a way, you know, Hillary Clinton, and you were in the heart of that campaign, but Hillary Clinton just obviously pushed, you know, for for all kinds of unfair reasons, you could say, but she pushed people's buttons, came across in a really negative way, came across as being a kind of snooty metropolitan elite liberal and everything that the the old Democrat base hate about the new Democratic Party. Um, so I don't know where that leaves the Democrats for the future. I mean, what do you think of that analysis, Kate? Is there something in yeah, that? No, so, it means Biden was the ideal man. He was he was the ideal man uh, for all of you say, and for the fact that you know he's he's an old white guy, yes, but an old white guy who has never budged from from the image of working class Joe, right? Uh, right. From Scranton, you know, riding the Amtrak. Uh, and a huge, huge partner of unions uh, for his entire career. So it's it's something that you know you you couldn't make make that up as a narrative in the last two years. It had to have been something that was true. And I think that's that's why, as you say, he was the perfect candidate to sort of win back uh, those voters who who went to Trump in sixteen in in these states. Now, I would be more sort of cautious as as um, is is Biden the only Democrat that can ever do this again? Because I think there's one huge element here that we sort of miss when we look at just the Democratic Party, and that's Trump. You know, I'm, I really, and, and you asked me how I felt on Wednesday, the biggest thing in my head on Wednesday was how much of this is uh, sort of a, a reshaping of the party, and how much of this is an issue of Trump. Um, all of those those voters who um, in in these blue wall states have turned out massively in droves for Trump and 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 you know rural areas across the country. Do they turn out for Republicans in 2022 and 2024 if Trump is not on the ballot? You know, have they become Republican voters or are they Trump voters? And I think that makes a difference because if it uh, if they're really just turning out for the excitement and uh, the character that is Trump, that means one thing for the Democratic Party. If they would sort of be swinging again in a future cycle, um, then you could win them in, in sort of different ways. Mitch, what do you think mm. about that? Yeah, I think that's a yeah, that's a very good question, and I think perhaps the the twenty eighteen election might point that way. The twenty eight mid twenty eighteen midterms, which t- Trump wasn't on the ticket um, on the ballot, and the Democrats did did significantly better. I think I'd just like to say one more point about about uh, Biden as a candidate. I think what sometimes we overlook is. The empathy of Joe Biden, I think that is perhaps more than anything what what made him president. Um, he just has this this fundamental decency, and and people realize it, and people can people acknowledge that. And I think it was just thrown into such stark uh, relief compared to President Trump with the COVID. And it's it's not a surprise that in you know in his acceptance speech, you know, Biden mentions you know the families, you know these empty seats at the table that he talks about. He this is just the language that he speaks in, and I think that really resonated. Um, I mean, in terms of the future of the, the Republican Party, I think that's a, a fascinating question. Although one might say here, is the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party in 2024 not Donald Trump? <laughs> like, it is, isn't it? I, yeah. mean, I, I mean, you you read news reports just today saying that he's already telling everyone he's going to run again in 2024. Yep. No, it's I certainly... Mean, Certainly, he's got. I, I mean, he's the the playbook there is 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 Andrew Jackson after after the eighteen twenty four election. Now, admittedly, Andrew Jackson had already served a, a term in office by then, but you know the the corrupt bargain 
as he called it, after 1824, Andrew Jackson never accepted the legitimacy of his defeat to John Quincy Adams and ran a wave of that resentment to a crushing victory in 1828. I mean, since we know that Trump, or at least I don't suppose Trump reads very much, but I mean, you know, people around him, you know, like to make this comparison with um, with Andrew Jackson. That's surely what they're going for. I mean, if I were if I were in the Democratic Party, the top of the Democratic Party now, I'd just be planning on the assumption that there was going to be a, a rematch in in 24 now. You're saying we have to do this all again, Adam? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's it's true, though, because you know we sort of forget that there is this in history of, of incumbents who have lost coming back. Teddy Roosevelt did a similar thing as well, right? But but actually switched parties. But I think the the one thing that cautions me on, on whether it'll be sort of the shoe in there is there are many Republicans sort of with their eye on that prize um, and already vying many that were in the, the Donald Trump cabinet. Um, and so the question there is with with all of these people running from from maybe Chris Christie again, but Mike Pompeo to Nikki Haley, um, do we see a, a primary where Trump runs away with it again? Or do we see a primary where perhaps there's a little bit more involvement from party elites and things like that to to sort of put their own uh, uh, interests at play and make sure he doesn't get nominated again? I mean, that's that's certainly the, the next well, round. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, who are these party elites? Who? Where is the Republican establishment who has the capacity to stand to stand against him? I mean, they're lockstep in with Trump. I mean, that's that's it. It's not that they don't exist. They, you know, you saw Mitch McConnell, you know, accepting the result of the election for the new Republican senators, but not for Joe Biden. I mean, this is this is what the Republican Party is now. I think in Kate's scenario, you would expect to see someone come out against the president or the, the current president, the soon to be former president, but we're not seeing that. Not really on. On the mainstream of Fox News, we're not seeing it in Mitch McConnell, not seeing it Kevin McCarthy, the House leader. We're just not seeing it. It's sort of unfathomable, but then it's sort of like entirely predictable for the last four years. I think we're sort of hoping mm-hmm. that, you know, the Republican Party is going to get better or that Mitch McConnell is going to wake up in a sort of Ebenezer Scrooge moment, but he isn't. <laughs> Grow a spine, yeah. yeah. No, not yet. Well, like, one observation uh, I wanted yeah. To make was about the the death of split ticket voting in this election. So the idea that you'll vote for a, a different presidential candidate to to down ballot. Um, I think as of as of this moment, uh, Susan Collins is the only candidate to run differently from how her state went in the presidential election, and that that is quite a historically unique uh, phenomenon. I was looking back this morning in 1992, 13 states uh, elected a different senator to how their their party voted in the general election. Um, looking back to 1984, uh, Al Gore carried Tennessee with 60% of the vote as senator, while Reagan carried it for president with basically 60%. So we're not really seeing any evidence, which may be the, the um, this polarization, this Trumpanization, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, of pe- people are just voting down the ticket for the one party. It's really, it's really striking that sorting at the Senate level. We've seen it happening at the House level over several election cycles, but the, the, this happening in the Senate level is really, really striking now. This has got potentially quite serious implications for governance, hasn't it? Because, I mean, one of the reasons why historically it was possible to broker deals in the Senate was because you had a significant number of senators who who knew it wasn't that they were kind of better people or naturally more bipartisan than they are today. It was just that they knew that their political interest lay in serving two different constituencies. You know, um, I mean, I don't know, you know, Kate, what, what, how do you break out of that kind of deadlock? 
Oof, I mean, if, if you've got a, a way to do that, let me know and I'll, I'll pass it on to the Biden White House. Now, well, first on, on split ticket, I think you're right. And we've sort of further polarized in, in this electoral cycle. But I think that actually looking into the numbers, you do see a few and it's not necessarily split ticket as it has been historically. But there were some Republicans who held their nose and, and voted for Biden. Um, you can see because uh, there are many states where the uh, Senate candidate won with a healthier margin uh, than than Trump did. And the reason I, I pull this out is because it's actually one thing that uh, the Trump campaign team is pointing to as a quote unquote voting irregularity, uh, that there would be some some ballots that uh, went for Republicans down ballot, but Biden at the top. Now, I don't think that's a voting irregularity. I think it's just because he was unpopular with a lot of more traditional conservative uh, Republicans, especially uh, suburban voters. Um, but but there were some people that did that. So that that is one of those signs of potentially a little bit of a party realignment if, if those people sort of come into the Democratic Party. But it doesn't necessarily look like it because they, they stuck with Republicans down ticket. Can I take us back a step here, just talking about the the, the candidates uh, for the Senate and something I want to ask you about, Kate. Uh, something that I observed this election was the, the explosion of, of this thing called Act Blue, which was a, an online fundraising, uh, which you know about, online uh, fundraising platform for the Democratic Party. And we saw huge numbers, uh, huge amounts of money coming in in these Senate races, you know, for people like Jamie Harrison to try and un- unseat Lindsey Graham, you know, $100 million, something like that. I wonder whether that backfired in some sense. It enabled Lindsey Graham to say, oh, all these, you know, liberals, you know, these sort of uh, Pelosiites want to come in and tell you how, how South Carolina should be run and whether, whether there's a bit of a potential for that to backfire and whether perhaps the money doesn't go exactly perhaps where it should. I was thinking someone like Joe Manchin is a, would Joe Manchin get any money on Act Blue? But I don't know whether any other Democrat could win West Virginia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's such a good point. I mean, yeah, so Act Blue is, is has been around since the Obama years and sort of is a, a space to marshal donations. I think the reason they exploded was not not anything about Act Blue, though, though good on them that they were able to handle this volume. Um, it was honestly just the sort of uh, entertainment and, and fetishization now of politics that we're seeing in the US where people that never ever cared about politics are now listening to the podcast and, and watching cable news and everything like that. So they're newly um, sort of this universe of people who on the Democratic side want to donate and and otherwise would have sort of stayed away from it. Um, and I think you're you're maybe right on the point about um, it sort of giving Republican candidates uh, a narrative to run on. We saw this in 2017 when Ossoff ran for the special election in Georgia then that the Republican in the, in the race was able to say, look at all of these uh, sort of uh, liberal elites coming in here trying to to fund us. But I think your second point is probably more true now. Um, there were a lot of candidates who were exciting and races that were exciting to Democrats that probably should have been putting their money elsewhere. Um, it was unlikely that we were going to, Democrats were going to unseat Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham. Um, if if that, those millions of dollars that Jamie Harrison in South Carolina and McGrath in, um, in Kentucky raised, if that had gone to uh, <laughs> to Alaska even or or to uh, some of these closer races in Georgia 
or North Carolina, it could have made the difference there. And so it's it's just, uh, again, that entertainment quality of of politics now you want to as a democrat want to give to the the people who are the stars not necessarily to the people who maybe could benefit from it the most that would have been so so satisfying for democrats to defeat lindsey graham because he just was the is the ultimate example of someone who went from being i mean not just trump skeptic but i mean really you know has been repeatedly had played you know his his excoriating comments about trump from 2015 and 2016 he's gone from that to trump toady in chief and so to to have taken him down would have been immensely satisfying but it wasn't just that was it it was also that the polls indicated mm-hmm. and bizarrely as it now seems in retrospect that jamie harrison had a real chance in in south carolina i mean in in iowa as well as another it's another race where um, the the Senate the, the polls indicated that, that that was going to be potentially a very close Senate race, and it wasn't it wasn't close at all. So that was another one where there was a lot of money went in, a lot of national attention. So I mean, this, so this brings us onto the polls, right? I mean, how much of a polling? I mean, Mitch, you know, you follow this stuff very closely, too I mean, closely. Was it, yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I do, I do too. But I mean, what is is the five thirty eight business model just broken? I mean, it doesn't matter how many you can run your simulations. 40,000 times or whatever they do. But if the inputs are fundamentally wrong, mm-hmm. it's your outputs are g- is going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, what on earth? I mean, what? I mean, how bad a, a polling mess up was this? I think it was very bad. And perhaps we can slightly differentiate the Senate versus the presidential race. I mean, the presidential race was actually pretty accurate. If we think about it, if you look at something like the Cook Political Report, they said Biden was going to get 306 electoral college votes. I think you'll get 306 electoral college votes. I mean, Florida is the outlier there, but Noticeably, people like Larry Sabato and the Cook Political Report were giving that Republican. The Larry Sabato's crystal ball thing did 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 pretty well in terms of predicting states, and the Cook Political Report, as you say, had had a had a in terms of overall electoral college votes was 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 around about right. But the reason, but that was surely that was more chance than anything else because their underlying assumption was that Biden would be four points higher than he is about in terms of national share of popular vote. So they were thinking he, he was going to win maybe the same states he may end up winning, but win them all comfortably. Mm-hmm. Whereas, in fact, in in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, if he wins Georgia, certainly in Georgia uh, and in Wisconsin and even in Michigan, these are squeakers in all of those states. And in all of them, well, in most of them, he was expected to win more comfortably. So, uh, Mitch, you're giving them too much of a free pass, aren't you? <laughs> Am I? I mean, <laughs> I might be hiring soon. Um, but... Well, yes, I, I guess you can see that. I mean, maybe we just, we, I don't know who the we is here, the, the people who consume this media, w- wanted a blowout, wanted a sort of, wanted a knockout, wanted Florida to go the other way and it was all going to be over, could be in bed at 11 o'clock. Like, this is still a bigger victory than than uh, than Bush in 2004. I mean, it's looking, it might be the, ex- the exact inverse of, of 2016. I don't know. I mean, maybe we do, I think we do, this is the problem with politics now is we follow the polls are the story. The polls don't tell us about how it's going. Every morning we wake up and we're saying, what's the New York Times, what's the New York Times, got to get on 538. I mean, that's not what, that's not the purpose of polling. Um, but that's what, I mean, that's a marketing message, I think, of 538. I mean, they're, they're sort of trapped there, aren't they? Because they want people to be obsessing over it. But when you obsess over it, you're not getting a true picture of the race. Mm-hmm. We desperately yeah. want something to to cut through the uncertainty in the days leading up to the yeah. election day, but it's it's not something that can do that. The only thing that can do that is is the actual result. 
Two things on on my side from the polling. The first is I think Mitch is exactly right. I, I think the polls, at least in the presidential, were not horribly off. Um, you'll 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 quickly hear all the poor very polls. bottom very bottom end of the margin. You'll quickly hear all that. the pollsters say that, right? Is, <laughs> yeah. Is, well, I mean, yeah. let's assume let's assume Biden has a what four point maybe a five point margin nationally, maybe maybe when all the votes are counted in California, and New York, okay. um, and uh, you know that's. Well, that's very bottom end of their expectations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sorry, go on, Kate. But go no, on. but but it, and it makes a difference, though, as you say, because um, that margin is everything. That margin changes where you spend your money. That margin changes, um, you know, if people turn out and vote or not. I mean, again, back to 2016, the reason people didn't vote is because because they thought Hillary Clinton was a shoe in, at least on the Democratic side, or they voted for a third party. The reason they have those sort of uh, inclinations is because that's what the the polls are saying, and that's how the media is interpreting them. So it it is an actual sort of feed into someone's decision that is problematic if they are wrong. But the reason why I think they are off and not I, I mean, this is what sort of folks are saying, is that you have a whole population of people who are unpollable, not just because you can't reach them on cell phones or whatever. It's because they're actually antagonistic to pollsters. They're antagonistic to media. They have been told that pollsters and, and media sort of reaching them are bad. Uh, so you you have, the, and those are the Trump voters, right? Those are the very, very um, sort of uh, aggressive and enthusiastic Trump voters. And so they do not want to be polled and want to like, you know, actually run away from those polls. And so obviously what, what the pollsters and, and modelers tried to do was weight things much differently this time around and, and just, you know, give higher weight to people that were non-college or things like that. But a simple non-college voter is not the same as a enthusiastic anti-pollster voter. Those are, those are, they actually act differently and they behave differently. So uh, clearly the, the weighting didn't, didn't work. And I think uh, either Mitch or Adam, as you said, if your inputs are wrong, the model is going to be wrong. And uh, we have not found a way around this. And in Instead, I think uh, the the tinkering that happened between 2016 and now sort of helped give a better picture, but it clearly didn't right all of those wrongs. But the last thing I think I'll say here is that that is what we're seeing on the public side, on on these public models like 538 and and the polls um, done state by state. Um, It's clear that internally, both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign had, I think, better better um, sort of margins. Uh, it's be- They both said and, and had been saying for weeks, and this was uh, unfortunately on the Biden side written off as spin to the media, uh, but they had been saying we're seeing a race that's much tighter and much closer in these states than those public polls are showing. That's interesting. So you, you think from from what you understand, the internal Biden polls were showing something closer to what actually transpired. Yeah, the internal polls are always better because you you actually have you know a universe of voters that you're working with uh, and, and different data that you're working with internally um, that you have sort of crafted to to sort of uh, give you or, or be an input to the outcome that you want. Where on the on the polling side, you're just trying to you know model what the overall voting universe looks like. Um, and and from what I know and from what people have said uh, internally, uh, it did show a much tighter race sort of consistently um, internally. I mean, there were some polls. To, I mean, the, the Anseltzer poll of, of Iowa, which um, freaked out Blue America on the, was it the Sunday before <laughs> the election? And there was, you know, there was a huge amount of sort of 
in quotes, contextualization of that poll, right, by, you know, the Nate Cones and the Nate Silvers and the and the Harry Entons and so on, were all saying, I don't know, no, no, you know, this this can't possibly be right, and they were benchmarking it against other polls. Well, it was bang on. I mean, you know, she got, she yeah. got bang on, right? So it, it clearly is possible sometimes to get it right. So is the proclivity of these low-trust voters to come out in 2020 and in 2016. I mean, this circles back to this question of how much is this just about Trump? I mean, he's, you know, he is a, a man who's made the world go mad. I mean, he's made America go mad. I mean, mad, either madly crazy for him or just madly crazy against him. And he's kind of, he's messed up the whole world in the most extraordinary way. I mean, perhaps he is just a one-off or perhaps we're seeing some profound shift towards a new kind of national populist um, politics, which the Republican Party is going to embody, and which can, which it can take forward post Trump. I mean, I guess that's one of the that's one of the big questions of American politics right now, isn't it? Yeah, I do think it's hard. Um, Trump is Trump. I think it's hard for another Republican to come in and sort of take that mantle. Um, and and this is, I suppose, what what gives me hope that maybe there is something that will sort of pass with with Trump. Um, and it's because he's not a politician, despite the fact that he became a politician. Uh, voters do not see him as one. And so in 16, we, we would sort of call him Teflon Trump. And it's because anything that you throw at him, that the media throws at him, anything, it just does not stick. Whereas with the politician, you know, any of these things would sort of be like the the final cut, the final straw. With him, people have already built that into their impression of him. And it's because he's an entertainer. It's because he is seen as a businessman. All of these things, he's also sort of seen as not a politician. Anybody else that sort of tries to come in and and have those same tactics um, does not have that sort of identity with the voters. And so I think that um, you know, maybe they'll they'll try to uh, you know use the same rhetoric and obviously take take on the same policy agenda or, or whatever that looks like for for the Trump side, um, but will not. I'm I'm thinking and perhaps hoping uh, be able to do so so effectively because Ted Cruz is a politician, right? Uh, uh, Pompeo is a politician, regardless of and, unless Trump runs again in twenty twenty four. Unless Trump runs <laughs> again, <laughs> for, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. or Don Jr. Or I don't yeah. know, can he could he take it on? I don't know. Maybe I think not. that's a Mitch. good. I think that's a it's a what's very fascinating to speculate about. I think what it sort of boils down is to is can you have Trumpism without Trump? And I'm not so sure that you can. I mean, he is just this, as you say, is this a Teflon Don? Like no, nothing sticks. I mean, you can't take out one element of Trump. You can't say you've seen people say, well, maybe if Donald Trump didn't attack John McCain, he would have won Arizona and he would win. I mean, you but you just can't have that. That was part of what people for who the hell knows why people enjoyed that he would go after the sort of shibboleths like you know you can't go after war heroes that you just can't pick and take oh what would you look like a slightly sort of sharpened or slightly um sanded edges trump i mean it it is just trump is the only one who can do it i think i i don't think ted Cruz can but if trumpism is actually something else if trumpism is actually something analogous to what the front national stands for in france if it's actually a nationalist populist close the borders, pull up the drawbridges, anti-immigration kind of movement, then sure, that can exist without Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that there is something to that because if you really want to look at it, and I'm sure there are good scholars probably at the RAI doing this, uh, Trumpism existed before Trump, right? This was the Tea Party. This was the the massive reaction against uh, the policies of the Obama administration, 
uh, sort of fed by by Fox News and and other right wing outlets that many people say gave rise to to Trump and gave rise to um, the, his coverage and birtherism and, and all of that. And so I think that uh, even if he were to go away and, and sort of, you know, go on to, to greener pastures, whether that's his own media company or, or whatever, um, that that impetus in society is, is clearly there and it's clearly part of the electorate. I mean, I don't think it's half the electorate. This is one thing that, that uh, we often sort of mistake when we're saying these things. Uh, the people that voted for Trump and, and did so enthusiastically is about 20% of the American population. It's not 50% um, as as the sort of outcomes would, would show. So it's in, important to know that we're always... Well, the rest are just loyal Republicans who want well, or Democrats, um, or or nuns, right? Uh, that, that don't really care. So you're you're dealing with one fifth of the American population that certainly has these these ideas and these proclivities. Um, so are you going to, uh, as was sort of happened after 2016, focus extensively on them and, and their needs uh, just because they're a very loud minority, or is there something else you can do with the the rest of the population to sort of fight back against it? Um, I do think that uh, sort of. Trumpism without Trump um, is going to have to decide how how it wants to move forward and what narrative it wants to to take forward. Um, and I think you'll sort of see this battle begin. Um, you know, is it a reaction against a socialist left? Is it a reaction against um, you know whatever uh, big stimulus plans are there? How do they deal with uh, the economic growth and and investment that the Biden administration certainly wants to bring forward? Um, do do they all of a sudden become austere Republicans again? I guess is what, what I'm asking, <laughs> uh, which many people are are already sort of showing signs of. Yeah, haven't heard the word debt for four years, but we're hearing that a lot now from Senate Absolutely. Republicans, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of bring this towards an end, I kind of want to end up really where I sort of started off in the intro, really. I mean, it's the it's the sort of the, the epic scale of American political rhetoric that, you know, that I've once again been reminded of here. You know, you that you can talk, if you're a politician like Joe Biden, about the soul of the nation being at stake and nobody as they would in british politics kind of titters behind their hands you know people really feel this and really mean this don't they kate yeah yeah it's been so fascinating for me i think um watching at least the the last two years of this cycle unfold while being here in the uk and uh, have have the sort of European rejection of American exceptionalism um, all around me, because you know, and there are many many people of my generation and younger who do not buy into American exceptionalism as a as a theory at all, because you know we grew up during the the Vietnam or sorry, not Vietnam the, the Afghan and Iraqi wars, um, and sort of that bubble was popped probably already in Vietnam. But what I think that the epicness shows is is the important of American politics. And, you know, the bells ringing across Paris when Biden won, the the fireworks going off here uh, in the UK, which, yes, were sort of kept over from from bonfire night, but yet they all went off as soon as uh, the, the results came in. As well as, you know, you see the the leaders in Ireland sort of feeling and and uh, India and uh, and Jamaica as well feeling something about the fact that immigrants from or emigrants from their countries are now in charge of, of the American uh, sort of uh, government. It, it just 
people buy into it and and feel it because it impacts the rest of the world so much. It's not just epic in rhetoric. It's ep- it's epic in meaning, as we've seen these past few years. I mean, if we want any action on climate change, any action on, on COVID, any action on any huge uh, global collective action problem, it matters who is in the U.S., and so whatever that soul is, is, is not just a soul uh, for Americans to fight over. It's a soul that everyone around the world wants to, to remark on, to, to, you know, create podcasts, disgusting, all of the rest. And so uh, we, we can't look away, perhaps, or in, in the rest of the world. And I think as an American, that's a good thing, because uh, that is, if you looked at the polling from this year, something that Americans, Republicans and independents, and of course, Democrats, particularly did not like about the Trump um, uh, era was how he turned his back on the rest of the world. And so that epicness is something that that voters vote on as well, uh, that that soul of the nation, our character and how other nations perceive us uh, is something that actually really matters to Americans, whether or not that matters to to Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think w- what it felt like on, was it Sunday here, was this sort of exhaling the idea that like it wasn't so much the sort of as well the joyous celebration was like oh America's sort of back to normal again maybe yeah. maybe we're approaching some form of normality I think as well as Donald Trump setting the the media agenda in the United States for the past four years five years probably it set that in basically every other country around the world like I would hazard a guess I don't have any facts for this but that Donald Trump has been on more front pages of the British newspaper you know Australian newspaper South African newspapers than than any other U.S. president. Mm. Um, and I think it, it it did feel like there was something at stake here. It did feel like every time sort of Trump went further, you thought this is it. This is this is this is as far as he's got to go. And he just sort of went one step further. I think even during the camp, you know, we sort of saw the horrible things that he did to Hillary Clinton during the campaign. But the sort of you know in the in that second debate going after you know Joe Biden's son for having drug problems and and things like that, it, it just felt. It felt different this time. It, it genuinely did feel, we, we, I try not to be partisan, but it did really feel like a good person against a not good person. You know, the day before the campaign, the day before the election, rather, you know, Joe Biden goes to visit his son's grave and, and say mass. Donald Trump calls into Fox News to harangue them for being unfair on him. Like that is just a contrast. So many contrasts that have been thrown up and many different visions of America. And I think Joe Biden just represents this, this different, you know, the hope for a kinder America, hope for a kinder world. I think mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of just the idea that like this guy that overcome, the, <clears throat> pardon me, sort of even, even there, like sort of getting a bit emotional talking about it. You know, he, he overcame you know, the, the stutter, you know, his, his, wife, his wife and, and child sadly passing away, you know, his son tragically passing away. This, this idea that like maybe good, good people can get ahead. I mean, that was sort of where I was on, on Sunday night. Yeah. And I think just as a a last point there, I think, I think that fight for decency is something that so many parts of the world are, are fighting now. And there's something about the American experience. The soul of the, the nation is democracy, right? I mean, that is what is the American project is based on. And so I think the rest of the world, especially democracies across the world or, or people who want democracies wherever they are in the world, saw this fight as a fight for democracy and for democratic institutions and for decent people getting ahead and for that American dream of you know a 19-year-old immigrant from India's daughter eventually becoming vice president. That yeah. is the power of, of the American idea. And that's what was on the on the ballot this time. And so I think that's why you're seeing this just uh, relief, but rejoice in the fact that these institutions are not 
you know, backsliding as as far back as we maybe thought they have been, um, that we can sort of, we can get back and, and the demo- democratic process can work and can sort of reinvent itself along the way. Yeah, you know, Kate, you said uh, you've 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 watched this election unfold in 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 Europe, in which there's a sort of default rejection of American exceptionalism, and I I know what you mean, and and there is a kind of tonal kind of perhaps especially in in Britain a kind of like eyebrow raising <laughs> about American exceptionalism, but I think for all of the reasons that you just said, I actually don't think fundamentally there is a rejection of American exceptionalism, and I think the reaction, the importance of this election around the world and certainly in the UK is testimony to that. I I mean, I'm, you know, I'm basically a child of the 90s. And so I can remember Bill Clinton's uh, first inaugural address in which his the most memorable line is there's nothing I'm just doing this from memory now, but there's nothing wrong with America that cannot be put right with what is right with America. Oof, and, yes. and that's I mean, I, you know, I was an undergraduate student then and I heard that line then and I'd barely been to the United States. It's not true. I had been to the United States by then. But, you know, I didn't know very much about it then, really. And and that was a massively resonant line. You know, you, you couldn't say that in British politics. You know, I don't know, Mitch, you couldn't say that in Australian politics and get away with it, could you really? I mean, you know, but you can say that about America and, and it, it's manifestly means something to people, not just in America, but around the world. We want, we want America to be a place that we can look up to. You know, when the, the Lincolnian phrase about the better angels of our nature mm-hmm. that Joe Biden has invoked, you know, we want that. We desperately want that. And you saw some of that in 2008 when when Barack Obama was elected and there was this kind of sense of great kind of excitement around the world. And it wasn't just because he was a, a kind of celebrity, brilliant orator and a kind of, you know, it was because he was an African-American and this kind of amazing example that was being set. And and the, the Trump reaction, if that's what it was, to Obama is, is this intense sense of, of disappointment, I think. It's as if like America is letting us down now and there's a sense. And so there is a sense of restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all the manifest real world problems and massive systemic <laughs> difficulties, you know, economically and politically and institutionally that the United States faces, there's still somehow this will for it to succeed well we've we've all ended up on a kind of <laughs> sort of soaring rhetorical <laughs> you can't help but go there when talking yeah. about the americans it's that you dream can't, and <laughs> yeah it is that dream and you know if even i mean biden you know he's obviously a great guy but he's not one of the world's greatest orators i think it's mm. fair to say but if even he you know because of his manifest decency can capture some of this i i do feel like he can he can go there he can reach that sort of into that sort of sense of where Amer- where America needs to be. And I think he'll go there with a newfound and and his team will go there with a newfound humbleness as well though. I mean it's not going to be the American exceptionalism of of the George W Bush years which is we can force this vision on the world. It's going to be uh, a sort of belief in and what I think we're talking about here, which is the ability to uh, for a democracy, whether it's American or not, right. but to be self-perfecting, right? That that what is so good about this, and and this is the the sort of Obama um, ideology as well, is that what makes America great is that it can keep making itself great. Yeah. Absolutely, I think it's not just rhetorical flourish either. I think Joe Biden genuinely believes it. Like Joe Biden, you know, he's the sort of son of a car salesman who's now now president. You know, he's um, mm-hmm. The daughter of the daughter of immigrants, now vice president. I think he genuinely believes it. Like he 
it's sort of there is a sincerity to it. He he does believe that America will be the one to cure cancer. Like he does believe that America will be, will, will beat COVID. Um, and I think yeah. that's just a it's a just a genuine thing about him, which is the 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 genuineness has always been the defining hallmark of Joe Biden. Absolutely. Mitch Robertson and Kate Guy, thank you um, so much for. Uh, joining me on the Last Best Hope podcast and hopefully perhaps the three of us can get together again maybe to talk about Joe Biden's inauguration uh, inaugural address which is something to which will be something to look forward to (laughs) thank you both very much indeed thank you